0: Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll be looking at part of chapter 8 and part of chapter 10. Our uh, children read a passage from uh, chapter 9, so that's included as well. But here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. In a newspaper article, Hillary Stout asked the question, Are you and your spouse illness-compatible? Are you and your spouse illness compatible? Oh, there's an array of marital discord. There's some big issues, money, religion, in-laws, to name a few. But there's one more big one that we're all missing. Are you and your spouse illness compatible? She says there's a I feel worse than you syndrome which seems to be particularly acute in households with small children. Women complain to other moms that they are exasperated, slodging through housework and kid chores while their ill husbands take to their beds. If I have a cold, he has the flu, said one lady. If I have the flu, he comes down with a bubonic plague. (laughs) A couple of weeks ago, Dan Dubno, a New York television producer, came home from work feeling ill and crawled into the bed at 7 p.m., leaving his wife, Lisa, who runs a foundation to deal with homework and dinner and bedtime for their 8- and 9-year-old kids. We could both be sick, says Lisa, but when I'm sick, I still have two kids. And when he's sick, the world may end at any moment. <laughs> For example, Lisa says, she had just given birth to their first child. I, I'm assuming no picnic in the area of pain and discomfort category. She was holding the new baby, ready to walk out of the hospital room to go home. That's when Mr. Dubno collapsed to the floor in agony and crawled over to the nurse's station. Turns out he had a kidney stone. You're so competitive, Lisa said. (laughs) He was well pleased to tell her that when they took him down to the ER, there was a woman who had both given birth and had a kidney stone, and she said the kidney stone really was worse. (laughs) Think sick, be sick. You've heard of the placebo effect think well, be well, take the little sugar pill, and when you think it's the right medicine for what ails you, you begin to feel better. It's in your mind. But there's something called the nocebo effect. In Latin, placebo means I will please. That's exactly what the little sugary pills do. Nocebo means I will harm. Let me give you a few examples, though they're not not much research out there. It's really hard for medical researchers to intentionally try to make people sick, so there are not a lot of studies, but there have been a few limited tests. Researchers made a surprising discovery that women who believed that they were prone to heart disease were nearly four times as likely to die from heart disease than their peers who don't hold such fatalistic views. Their risk factors age blood pressure, cholesterol, weight, the usual culprits, they were all the same. So the higher risk of death had nothing to do with these usual factors in heart disease. Instead, the only difference between the trial group and the sample group was their belief. One group believed they were going to get heart disease, get sick and die, and they did. Arthur Barsky, a psychiatrist at Boston's Brigham and Women's Hospital said, they're convinced that something's going to go wrong and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, it does go wrong. Barsky has published in the JAMA, the Journal of the Medical American Association. Herbert Benson, Harvard Medical School professor says, surgeons are wary of doing surgery on people who think they're going to die. There are examples of studies on people undergoing surgery who almost always want to die to reconnect with a loved one who's passed away. And I'm quoting the Harvard Medical School professor, close to 100% of people under those circumstances will die. Nearly 100% who want to die will die. Dr. Benson is convinced it's true. The Nacebo effect plays a major role in many conditions especially stress-related ailments. Well, the nocebo effect was running rampant in Corinth, way back in the first century. It was tied to their worry about eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Would it somehow be a sin? Would it make them sick? They were worried. Think a sin. It is a sin. It becomes harmful and hurtful. Transport yourself to a moment back to Corinth, to the Greek city, the first century AD. There are temples everywhere. And in those temples, the gods and goddesses, there are sacrifices every single day. It's part of what the people do. Their birthday parties are at the temple. The celebrations are at the temple. They feel like a god or a goddess has made them well. They invite their friends. They celebrate the temple. And right next to the temple, because of all the sacrificing, is restaurants, multiple restaurants. The temple, the restaurants attached, a pavilion there in the middle. And even out the back door, the meat sacrifice to the gods and goddesses goes to the butcher shops across the street. So it would be really, really hard to eat meat in Corinth and it not be associated with one of the temples to a god or a goddess because, well, that's just the way it was. If you were to go to the Corinthian Burger King... Your BK brawler might be, include leftovers from a sacrifice to Zeus, the king of the gods. It was a common practice, and nobody really had a problem with it. That's just the way the meat market was dominated in the pagan culture. Well, nobody had a problem with it except for some early converts to Christianity. You see, they had left a life of idolatry. They had turned from, from wood, to worship a living and a true God. They had turned their backs on the the Corinthian temples and the Greek gods and goddesses. They felt guilty eating meat sacrificed to their old gods, their old idols that they had left behind. They wanted to be faithful followers of the one true God. They wanted to follow the living Lord. And so when they saw others... Other Christians eating in the temple restaurants or buying meat from the butcher, they've been through the sacrifice process, they were troubled. Think sin, it's a sin. And then there were others of the church who said, nothing doing. We have freedom in Christ. We are free to eat this meat, freedom to eat the meat in the restaurants connected to the pagan temples. Because we know there are no true idols. There's only one God, the living and true God. The idols are stone and wood. They're nothing. Don't take away my freedom. So we have a problem. We have a problem in Corinth. Those who know the idols are not real are flaunting their liberty before those who are struggling with meat sacrificed to idols. So Paul has to say something. He says something to those who are in the know. and He says something to those who are struggling. Well, look at chapter 8, verse 1. This issue takes up chapter 8, 9, and 10. We'll look at portions of 8 and 10. Now concerning, now in the letter to the Corinthians that we call 1 Corinthians, this is a peri-day construction. Every time Paul says, now concerning, he seems to be referring to a question they've asked in a letter. So every time we get now concerning Perry Day, he's saying, you asked me about eating meat sacrificed to idols. Now I'm going to answer you that question. Now concerning about which you wrote meat sacrificed to idols. We know that we all have knowledge, but knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. If anyone supposes he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things, sacrificed to idols, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there's no God but one. But even if there, is, so, there are so-called gods, whether in the heavens or the earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom all things And we exist through Him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food. As it were, sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. This is what the Corinthians are saying. We are neither the worse if we do not eat or better if we do eat. But, yes, but, take care lest your freedom somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in the idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And thus by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against the Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again that I might not cause my brother to stumble. Well, he walks them through the thinking here. Now, you're right. There are no other real gods in that sense. There's only one true God. In fact, he seems in verse six to be barring from Deuteronomy six the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. What's shocking about 1 Corinthians 8, 6 is he takes the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and connects it with Jesus as the living Lord. The new introduction here is, yes, there is but one God, but there's the expression of the Father, and here he includes the expression of the Son, that this Lord God we worship was Jesus in the flesh. Well, He says to them, some men may have the knowledge, others may not have the knowledge about the idols not being real gods. So they argue, what does food matter? Our stomachs will be done away with. We're not better if we do eat. We're not better if we don't eat. It doesn't matter. But take care, he says, verse 9, lest somehow your freedom, your liberty, cause somebody else to fall someone who's just left the idol worship and the temple and their friends are still there and they have forsaken the idols to worship the one true living God, the Lord Jesus Christ, they see you, a mature Christian, in the restaurant connected to the temple and they're drawn back in. And for you, it's just a meal. For them, they're drawn back in to the religion and the superstition of idolatry. Be careful how you flex your muscles of freedom Quit being puffed up. Look at verse 1 of what he says. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant. Your translation may say puffs up. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. What he's saying here is this. You think you have knowledge that there are no real other gods, and therefore you have freedom in Christ, but quit being puffed up and start building up. The question is, how are you impacting the church, the body of Christ, with your behavior? Don't be puffed up in knowledge, but rather build up the body of Christ. How are you impacting others in the community? Don't let your own freedom, verse 9, cause a brother to stumble. What he's saying here is this, those who have knowledge, what really matters is if God knows you. Verse 3. You think you have all this knowledge, you know everything, but what really matters is does God know you? The relationship with God is initiated by God. He says it this way in Galatians 4, 9. Now, however, you have come to know God, or rather, more importantly, to be known by God. What he's saying here is this. Your knowledge is not at all what's important, but God's Knowledge of you—it's God's knowing you—that really matters. If you exercise your liberty and you become a stumbling block to those who are weak, you have sinned. The whole point—you're right, he says. Technically, food doesn't matter. It doesn't draw us close to God. It doesn't push us away from God. But if you're causing other folks to fall back into idolatry, you're causing your brother to stumble. He's saying something like this. Christ died for him and you can't give up going to the restaurant at the temple for her. Be careful, he says. So, everything you do, how it impacts your brother. The first thing he's saying is this. His major message, stop flexing your freedom in Christ and focus on your brother. Stop flexing your freedom in Christ and focus On your brother. Now turn over to chapter 10. So we can conclude, when it came to the temple restaurants, meat that was connected, the restaurant right there, the sacrifice, all in the same complex, he said, don't go. Don't go to those restaurants anymore. We're calling people out of those temples and out of that idolatry. They walk by and they see you, to you, it's just a meal or a birthday party or a celebration, but to them. But to them, it'll cause them back into idolatry. Well, then they ask the question, okay, Paul, we we can't go to the temple restaurants anymore. What about the meat in the butcher shop that's been at the temple, has come and gone across the street to the butcher shop, and I buy the butcher shop, and I don't know where the meat comes from. Not all of it comes from the temple worship. What about that? Chapter 10, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, flee idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. By the way, tonight we're having the Lord's Supper. Is a great passage for that. Is not the cup the blessing which we bless, sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break, sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, and we partake of one bread. Through some meals, we all become one. He gives us three examples of meals by which we might all become one. The first one is the Lord's Supper. Well, Christ changed that Passover to say, This is my blood which is shed for you. This is my body which is broken for you. Do we not become one at the table of fellowship when we observe the Lord's Supper, he says? And what about the nation of Israel? Israel. When they had feasts and festivals and sacrifices, did they not come together and share in the altar, he asked? What do I mean then, verse 19? That the thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or an idol is anything? I'll give you, he's saying, the idols really aren't anything. They are wood and stone. But behind those idols, verse 20? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. And not to God, I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You see the the image here he has? When we have the Lord's Supper, we have koinonia, or fellowship. We're sharing. The word koinonia, fellowship, or sharing, we share at the table. We share one Lord. We share one meal. We become together. And yes, you're right. The idols are just stone or wood, but that meal, it elicits sharing, And they're sharing with demons because behind those idols is the idea of another power, a demonic power. I do not want you to become in fellowship with demons, shares with demons, verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord like tonight and the table of demons. Or do we want to provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are no stronger than they, are we? So what he's saying here is this. Behind those idols, there is real dark power that will lead them astray and cause them to fall. So do not cause your brother to stumble. So now he takes the case of the butcher shop. What if I go to somebody's house? Let's say I don't go to the temple restaurant. Let's say I just go to somebody's house and I have a meal. What happens then? Verse 23. They're saying, hey, all things are lawful in Christ but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful. See, here's our word, but not all things build up. Yeah, in Christ, you could do that. You could be puffed up and do that, but I want you to build up the body of Christ. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor you and I must ask the question every time we make decisions about our ethical behavior not only how does this impact me but how does this impact us to do otherwise is to be the guy with the drill in the boat and saying hey this is just my seat I'm gonna drill a hole where I'm seated Paul says, wait a minute, it's better to lose some of your freedom and not offend your brother. The second thing he's saying here is this. Paul's addressing the problem of boundaries between the church and the pagan culture. Paul is addressing the boundaries between the church and the pagan culture. Those temple events were daily. Asclepius, the son of Apollos, they found temple there with actually dining rooms connected to the temple. They found invitations for people invited to family reunions and birthday parties and all the things at the temples. And well, the wealthier Christians were used to going and hanging out with their, their pagan friends and family at the temple, and to say no would hurt their family's feelings, and it got complicated, and nobody knew what to do. Paul says, whatever it costs you in regard to going to the temple and causing your brother to fall, don't do it. And yet, chapter 10, what about the meat and the butcher shop? Eat eat anything, verse 25, that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all that contains. He's quoting a psalm there. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you wish to go, eat anything that's set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. Not your conscience, but their conscience, he's saying. But someone should say to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who's informed you, and for conscience' sake, I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's conscience. And why then is my freedom, he asked, judged by another's conscience? So what he says is this, yes, some of the meat in the butcher shops has been to the Idols worship, but we know there's no real gods behind those idols. If you go to somebody's house, you're not obligated to ask, now which butcher shop did you buy this to and what's the history of this meat before me? Don't worry about it. But if someone announces, hey, that meat was sacrificed in the temple, then for the sake of the conscience of the other one, your friend, maybe even an unbeliever, do not partake. In the meat, because of the damage it might do. Here's the third thing Paul says finally. He says this to the weak. The strong, they have the knowledge, they're puffed up, they want their freedom in Christ. The weak, their conscience is still bothered by the old the road of idolatry. What do, the third thing he says to the weak, you got to start doing some growing up. I'm going to hold the strong back, but you have to start doing some growing up. Eugene Peterson translates 1 Corinthians 10, 30 through 31 this way. But except for those special cases mentioned above, I'm not going to walk around on eggshells worrying about what small-minded people might say. I'm going to stride free and easy knowing what our large-minded master has already said. If I eat what is served to me, grateful grateful to God for what is on the table, how can I worry about what someone else will say? I thank God for it. He blessed it. I'm going to eat it. So the last thing he says... He says to the strong, hey, listen, you're in the boat with the weak. They just left that temple. Their family's still there. Don't drill a hole in their boat. But then to the weak, he says, in regard to these things, you've got to grow up and realize there is no God but the living God, and you should not go around trying to control your brother. Grow up, Paul says to the weak. I'll give you a modern example of arena of cultural conflict that we face. How do the people of God fit in the context of social networking with cyber sources? It's an interesting phenomenon to me, and I really don't completely understand it, but I've I've observed it. One who behaves by normal, acceptable standards and has a Christ-like lifestyle in his everyday life suspends for a moment his moral judgment... It behaves completely differently on the Internet. People post things on their Facebook or Twitter accounts they would never, ever say to a colleague at work. Or if you're a teenager, you might post things that you would never say to your parents or to your pastor. Once we enter cyberspace, for somehow we feel like we have an enormous amount of freedom and no one will know who we are. And nothing actually could be further from the truth, could it? I'll speak to our students for just a moment. A recent survey revealed that 40% of teenagers had posted something on some internet source that they later regretted. 40% had wished they could take something back. 37% have posted something that makes fun of another student. 25% of our teenagers, that's one in four, have posted a false identity. Realizing if I get behind this screen of false identity, I can say what I want to. 13% of teenagers have posted an inappropriate picture of themselves on the Internet. Whatever you put on the social media pages today may haunt you for the rest of your life. An alcohol-induced post-prom picture may be there to greet you as you sit down for your first real job interview. You know, an inappropriate picture of yourself can become a web digital tattoo to follow you forever. We were looking at someone's resume this week for a particular job, and I asked someone younger than I who would know how to do it, find everything you can on the Internet and let me know. The report was clean, I'm happy to say but even an old guy like me looked. I looked to discover, are you the same person in person as you are on the social media? One college professor says a psychology of the internet, it makes people feel invisible. They conclude there won't be any consequences for their actions. You would never go in the middle of the high school courtyard and shout something out about a student in your history class to the top of your lungs, and yet you'll type it. It's the same thing, you see? Hurting others to pull yourself up. There's something known now as cyber ethics consultants. I found one by the name of Patty Yamano who says, if you're a good person in life, you should be a good person on the Internet. The kids don't understand the relationship between real life and the Internet, that the Internet is real life. All of us have heard someone say, I was so disappointed to see her Facebook page. I thought so much of her. I'm just trying to get that comment and that picture out of my mind for her. I don't want to associate those things with her. I wish I'd never seen that. Maybe... Our social media is our meat sacrificed to idols. Paul wants you to know we're all in the same boat, and all of us have DeWalt-powered drills in our hands. And we think about ourselves, our freedom in Christ, how this is going to impact just me, I can turn it down and look at you and say, hey, this is just my seat. This is just my life. Don't tell me what to do. And Paul says, that's not the way to do it. If there's something I'm doing going to cause my brother to stumble, if I'm going to cause his boat to sink, if I'm going to get him wet, he's going to drown. If he's going to fall back into a sin because I'm exercising my freedom, then I need to be careful about what I choose to do. Don't be puffed up with your freedom in Christ. Build up, edify the body of Christ. You may have the freedom to say and do a lot of things, Paul's saying, but are you building up the church? Are you offending others? Are you putting your own selfish desire to the side to protect the body of Christ? Once you proclaim Jesus as Lord, there's two questions you have to ask about everything you do. Is this good for me, and is this good for my church? Is this good for me, but equally, is this good for my church? Because we come, like tonight, to the same table, take the same blood of Christ, the same body of Christ, and we are in koinonia, we are sharing as one. Let us pray. Oh, God, we're reminded that everything we do impacts our neighbor, and that, Father, we should always, always think of others. Give us your grace and your peace. Amen.